All right, morning family, how are we doing today? We're doing well? Good. Gorgeous day. Uh, So my family's been out of town since Wednesday, so uh, for those of you who uh, might not not attend regularly, I'm usually here with with seven little ones and my my lovely wife, Amber, and they're not here, so I haven't eaten in seven days or so, and... uh, and I feel like a ship without a sail. I'm just kind of riding the waves and going where the, uh, I don't know, where the spirit leads. I don't know what you do. And <laughs> it's, it's a foreign situation. So if you think about it, I do pray. They're driving from here to Pennsylvania. Uh, they're currently in Colorado. Uh, it's my wife and her parents and uh, seven little ones. So you can imagine it's just awesome all the time. And the, <laughs> the kids are always like, they wait at least seven hours before they have to go to the bathroom again. They never cry. It's it's perfect. Um, I, that was all sarcasm, and it was meant to indicate what you need to pray for. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, so please do. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read from our passage today. We're uh, going to be in uh, the book of Ephesians, continuing on, uh, chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. So again, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Please pray with me. Hmm. Oh, Father, how we need you. Father, how we need, um, we need a word. We, we need encouragement. Some of us need rebuke. Some of us need just that extra bit of strength to get us through a hard time. And some of us need a massive outpouring of just grace and kindness to get us through uh, a season that we don't see any ultimate end to. Pray for your people, Father. Pray for your people that you would uh, exhort the idle, those who, uh, those who maybe in their minds think that they've got all together and everything's great. I'm just good when things are not good. Pray for those, Father, who are hearing the lies of the evil one of, of accusations and condemnations and things that undermine the goodness of God and Christ that you would lift their hearts up and lift their eyes from themselves and their situations today and fixate them on the risen Christ and the goodness of the risen Christ. And Father, I just pray that our time together right now would be a time where the enemy's schemes are exposed, where the dick deeds of darkness and the dictates of darkness are brought into the open, and more than anything, where our blinders are pulled back to where we can see the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. And it's in his uh, matchless and wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, so like Matt mentioned last week, uh, this isn't a topic that is really pleasant to grapple with, right? Where we're talking about an invisible power, right? Uh, a force of evil that has its end goal, the undoing of all the good that is made. Right, it's, We're talking about beings whose sole intent is the marring of God's good name in his creation. We're talking about a being, an enemy, an enemy, one who hates us. Who's not just an enemy, but he's a mortally wounded enemy. 
So we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and we, you know, the, the series has been titled God's New Society. And by that, we, we've looked at God's work in redemption, and on this side of the cross, we, do, we see that God has formed a new people, that he has made a community with different standards, with different motivations, with different hearts, with a different story from the world around us, and with an enemy who is mortally wounded. The serpent has been crushed. The devil has been defeated. So he knows he has no final say in the matter. He knows he has no final say in what happens in God's creative purposes, but he'll take down everyone that he can in the process of going down and dying. He's a mortally wounded animal. He's vicious. He hates us. And he's no respecter of persons or means or situations or anything else. He could care less about that. He's a mortally wounded enemy. His defeat is certain, but his complete defeat has not happened yet. Verse 12, what we just read right now, it tells us that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. And then it goes on to say what we do wrestle with. And I want to stop really briefly and consider what we are not wrestling against. Okay. Who, who is not our enemy in an ultimate sense? And uh, to illustrate this, I, I just want to go to the book. Of, we're just going to go in 2 Timothy really quick. We're going to jump around a few passages today. So if you want to have your Bibles out, just, just be ready to, to, to kind of jump around a little bit as we're looking at these different passages. Uh, so 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 through 26. Paul's encouraging Timothy. He's a teacher in the church. He's a young pastor. And Paul's encouraging him for how to behave as a pastor toward those who are opposing the message of the gospel, toward those who are declaring things that are not akin to the kingdom of God. And he says this. He says in verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. With gentleness. God may perhaps grant them, his opponents, repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's a remarkable phrase, captive, captured by the devil, ensnared by him to do his will. So here we're presented with the sense that we are in a world where we see real evil going on. We're in a world that we see people who really have done awful things and really do awful things and really think awful things. But behind them is a captor, is someone who holds them captive. And he doesn't hold them captive against their will. He holds them captive by their will. They're held captive by their lusts. They're held captive by their desires. They're blind. But we have to understand who our enemy is in this process. Muslims, brothers and sisters, are not our true enemies. Liberal greedy politicians, conservative greedy politicians who are, who are making dis- decisions that affect people with no consideration for anyone else other than their own selfish gain. They are not our true ultimate enemies. 
A perfectly healthy, able-bodied, homeless man who's taking advantage of the free resources, who's uh, scamming and siphoning gas from cars so he can make meth to make a profit. He's not our enemy in an ultimate sense. People who practice sexual vices of every shade, okay? Homosexuality, bisexuality, men who go and just sleep with whatever they want to. No commitment, They are not our enemies in an ultimate sense. All of the above, my dear friends, are captives. They're people taken captive to do the will of the evil one. Just like you and I and all the rest of the human race. Just like we were prior to being taken captive by a greater, a greater captor, a loving captor, one who has our interests in mind, namely uh, namely Christ Christ. And captives, beloved, require liberation, right? Even if it's liberation from the things that they hold most dear. But one thing is clear in this text that we've just read, uh, and the other text as well as we've been going through Ephesians, is that there's no neutrality in the battle for the human soul, okay? Uh, the, The Bible portrays really clearly two distinct sort of kingdoms, two distinct sort of ways that are at work in the world. And the reality is that you either belong to one or you belong to the other. There's no middle ground, okay? Your allegiance is either given to the dominion of darkness, which consists of the evil one, the world and its practices, or the kingdom of the one true God. God is creating a new society, and its way of life necessarily runs against the grain of the ones embraced by the world. There's going to be conflict. There should be conflict, Because both are competing for our allegiances and both are competing for lordship. Both are declaring that they're the true owners and the runners of this world. But is this the case? And what does this look like? So our first topic is just going to be the enemy's playground. Where where, where does the enemy actually operate? How does he operate? When we think about spiritual warfare, we think about the, the demonic and, and everything here. It's, it's way too easy. You just, it, it either gets Hollywoodized, so you get exorcisms and spinning heads and profuse vomitings and weird things like that, uh, or you get you know, uh, people, it, the biblical examples, where you have demons being cast out of a man, being cast into a herd of pigs, and the pigs running off a cliff into a lake and dying. And that doesn't happen for the most part. I suspect that most of us haven't seen that happen. Most of us haven't seen that. And, you know, you see a guy and his head starts to spin and you're like, uh, geez, that's, that's awful. You probably have something going on that, that shouldn't be going on. Like, have you tried a gluten-free diet? Like, you know, like, you know, like, you know that's, that's not how we talk. Most of us haven't experienced that. But I want to read a passage here that I think, just, I think it enlarges a bit just what we're talking about. Uh, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, John tells us, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, unless you would look around, you would, ex- you would expect with a world run by the devil, a world overrun with people who've given their allegiance to the devil, you would expect to see green-faced people or people cursing all the time, people gnawing at their, I mean, just, just horrible, awful things all the time. But by and large, we don't see that. In third world countries, 
You don't see that. You see kids running around and playing soccer. Yes, there's hardship. Yes, there's difficulty. Yes, there's poverty and all these things. But there's joy mixed in. So what does he mean? What do you mean the world is in the power of the evil one? And I think John just gives us a hint of this a few chapters before in uh, chapter 2. I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Did you hear that? The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions, or the boastful pride of life. And I think we do see that, and we know we see these things, right? We see them rampantly. We see them being exercised in front of us all the time. Those we can see. We can see those in the news, in the entertainment industry, and in the church. Think about the passages that we just read a couple minutes ago about in Second uh, Timothy. That all those outside of Christ, all those whose allegiance has not been given to the risen Christ, are operating according to the enemy's schemes. They're doing the will of the evil one. The enemy of our souls works in the realm of gut-level human desire. Those are his means. Those are his tactics. To resist an enemy who's walking around, everybody and the people that look like zombies are demonically possessed, rebuke them. Okay, that's obvious. But for souls that are running around and embracing styles of life and ways of thinking and ends and goals and things like that that serve a kingdom that is contrary to God but looks attractive on the outside... That's harder to discern. It's tricky. And it ensnares us. It traps us. Gut level human desire. That's the playground of the enemy. And there are other texts as well. So uh, if you go to 2 Corinthians 2, uh, verses, uh, verses 5 through 11 is the, the broader context. He, Paul's here and he's talking to the church and he's asking this church, the church in Corinth, to comfort, to forgive, and to reaffirm love for a repentant believer who had strayed from the faith. And this is what Paul tells the people. After exhorting them to forgive this brother, this brother who had wronged the church and who was being a poisonous influence in the church, who had since repented, he comes back and they say, bring him back. Paul says, bring him back. And it says, um, forgive me while I find my spot. Uh, In verse 10, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. So Paul here associates the possibility of the church's unwillingness to forgive as a design, as a scheme of the evil one. Unforgiveness in the context of a body is a place for the devil to attack. It's a scheme of the evil one. Later on in chapter 11 of the same letter, so, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we were here, Paul's talking about the, he, 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 gave, he 
preached the gospel to this church and he wanted this church to have a, a sincere and a pure allegiance to Christ and to the true gospel. And Paul preaches to them and he says, he writes to them and he says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it regularly or readily enough. And then he says later on, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. He calls people who are proclaiming a different gospel servants of Satan. Servants of Satan. Matt, Matt said last week, he was talking about the, the, the in Revelation, where it's talking about the church, and now they were in the, these, these places that were preaching different religions and different gospels, were synagogues of Satan. They might not have been explicitly worshiping the devil, but they were bringing forth something that was contrary to the kingdom, that upheld a view of the word, of the world, that was contrary to God's standards. That was contrary to his kingdom. Paul's telling us here that false teaching comes as a scheme of the evil one. Even if it's garbed in righteous deeds, right? We're zealous for social justice. We're zealous for this good purpose or that good purpose. Satan comes about as an angel of light. He's deceptive. He's deceptive. He's a schemer. He's smart. He's been around a few times. This isn't his first rodeo. And in the book of James, we read in chapter 3, verses uh, 13 through 15, it says, um, Who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, or natural Demonic, demonic. I notice right that there's no transition between the wisdom that's earthly and the wisdom that is demonic. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition qualify as demonic categories. Think about that. Bitterness, jealousy, strife, ambition, greed. They qualify as demonic categories. It's a stunning thing, beloved. It's a really stunning thing. So, so we see this here, that the devil's playground is the world, and it's the ways of the world. All that's antithetical to the kingdom of God. So the call to stand, okay, we talked about, what Matt talked about last time, the call to stand against the schemes of the evil one is a call to stand amid the barrages of his attacks in the whoop and wharf of everyday living. The normal stuff. Right? Amid a world of social theories, entertainments, and philosophies, and the like, all of which are captive to the devil and to do his will. So to stand against the schemes of the evil one involves, as I said before, not just in exorcisms. I, 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 I grant that there's, a, there's room for that. 
We, I have met people who've had the, the weird contortions of face and, and all those things. In India, my, Amber and I encountered things like that, explicit demonic evil stuff that was so overt, you just couldn't deny it, that it was a supernatural thing. But that's not the norm. It involves discerning and standing against the evil age in which we find ourselves. The age of unbelief for us here, right? An age that denies the presence, the reality of the spiritual realm. It denies God. And it denies at root that true human flourishing is going to come as a result of heeding God's word. We stand against those things, beloved. That's part of what it means to stand against the schemes of the evil one. And the important part for us this morning, beloved, is that when we engage in behavior, in attitudes, in thinking, when we hand over even the most minute bit of our allegiance over to the evil one, okay, through unforgiveness, right, through embracing a gospel that is not in accord with the true gospel, or in giving our hearts and our souls full access to whatever selfish desires that we want at that particular time, we make room for him. We make room for him. That's what Ephesians 4 talks about. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and do not give room for the devil. And you picture that. You just think about that, right? You're, you're, you're at your dinner table and you're sitting here and it's like you're pulling your chair out <laughs> in, your, in, in unforgiveness, in denying the truth of the gospel, in bitterness and selfish ambition. And you leave a space there and you're saying, come, Sit. Dine with us. Eat with us. Domestic evil. It's wicked. It's bad. Bad stuff. Now this isn't to say that we lose our standing in Christ, right? We don't lose our standing in Christ, but it's just that we're not standing as though we were actually in Christ, right? We're not taking up what's actually ours. When we embrace and we give our allegiances, we give our ways to the enemy, and one quick thing, there's this, there's this, this profuse lie, and it's, it's a lie, it's rampant in our culture, it's rampant in churches, it's rampant all over the place, right? That, well, the enemy's attacking me, he's attacking me, or he attacks individuals, right? The enemy's tactics are never intended to just hit one person and then remain there, right? If any of you are going through a particularly, like a, just a hard time, lies, struggles, whatever, it's not, it's not because you're so particularly incredible that Satan just had to bring you down. Otherwise, it would have been, you know, just game over for the devil's schemes over and over. No, he does it to hurt those around you. Your sins, your, your falling into the lies and the schemes of the evil one never happens in isolation. And the results, therefore, don't just hit you. They hit your family, and they hit your neighbor, and they hit your churches, there's a broad effect. The enemy's smart. He doesn't just strike once and then let it kind of sit on the one person. He wants it to spread. There's always a community aspect. Thus, we never sin in isolation. We never think evil thoughts in isolation. Ever. Not one of us ever has and not one of us ever will. But what does this look like on the ground then? In the day-to-day, particularly in our day? Um... I want to focus just today on one of our enemy's names. Right? He's, he's called the tempter, the deceiver, and the accuser, right? So it is, his, his very language is that of falsehood. He's a liar. 
Um, we read that in John 8, 44, right? He's a tempter, again, and an accuser. Um, but one quick thought. Uh, so how do we discern what the lies and the evils of our particular age are, right? If the air that we breathe is that evil air, right? If everywhere that we walk, it's just kind of the norm, right? Blind spots are just that. They're blind. We're blind to the things that are around us. If the enemy is truly a schemer, he doesn't attack with the overt things, with the obvious things. So how do we know? How, how, what, what do we do to try to get some perspective on what it is that is actually going on here. What is happening? If the devil's tactics are the world's tactics, if the devil works through the means of the world to attack his people and to destroy the world and to create chaos and death and destruction, to unravel God's goodness and creation, and we're to be wise against those schemes, how do we do it? We're caught in the middle of it. How can we tell? How do we discern? Every age, to some degree, it suffers from what Lewis, uh, we, we always run to C.S. Lewis. It's, it's always C.S. Lewis or the rescue. He calls chronological snobbery, right? And by that, he just means it's the, uh, the uncritical acceptance that is taken in of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. So it's out of date. That was old stuff. Well, yeah, that was how they used to do it. Our mindset today is progress. We're on this upward turn. We're, at, we're going uphill. Science and philosophy and all the discoveries in the natural realm, they're making everything so much better. And it's easy for us to say as the minority in the world, we're not tasting the, the soreness and the pain and the struggles of everyday life of putting bread on the table and everything. But that's our particular thing, Right? We, we're snobs with regards to discoveries. We're snobs with regards to what the old people had to say, what the people of old, when they were writing, their insights on life, their insights on spiritual realm, their insights on how to do things wisely. So what we're going to do today, uh, we're going to go to an older guide who's going to help us think through this. And uh, he breathed a different air than we breathe today. Uh, it wasn't a purer air, right? Every age has its own thing, but it was a different air. The struggles in his day were different than ours. Hundreds of years ago, uh, a guy named Thomas Brooks, he was a 17th century Puritan, again, older guy, he published a book entitled Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Uh, it's a great book. It's just got dozens of just basic lies that Satan tells unbelievers, basic lies that Satan tells Christians, basic lies that Satan uses to deceive Christians into believing particular things. It's a great book, and it's really accessible, super readable. Uh, highly, highly, highly relevant to what we're talking about today. Um, so he's got, again, dozens of these, but we're just going to look at three of them today. We're going to, uh, sorry, four of them. We're going to look at three temptations, so three lies that the enemy speaks to us, and one accusation. Three temptations, one accusation that I believe are particularly relevant in our co- uh, current cultural moment. Pardon me. All right, so temptation number one. Satan lies, he deceives the people of God by presenting the world in such a garb as to ensnare the soul. So by presenting the world with a big smile and the world's ways with a big smile. Christians are ensnared by the world because 
And they're ensnared into his tactics, into his schemes, and into his plans because the world looks pleasant. It looks good. And the ways of the world look good. They seem to, they, they, they seem to give promise for life and life abundantly. Right? You hear promises all the time. Advertising is an industry of making false promises, making promises you can't keep. If you're going, it's a cigarette board, it's an alcohol board, it's a sports authority, it's a, a magazine that you're going by, it's a candy bar, it's a new diet system, whatever it is, you're hearing gospels and promises all the time, none of which deliver, ultimately. So he presents the world to us in such a garb as to ensnare our souls. Uh, the second lie, by painting sin with virtue's colors. Painting sin with virtue's colors. The enemy knows that to present sin in its natural garb, it, it wouldn't just displease us. It wouldn't just kind of go across wrong, and that's, that's not very good. I, I don't want that. It would probably nauseate us, right? right? The, the devil's words in the garden to Eve were not, eat this fruit and you will die. Right? It, like, it, that would have been dumb if she would have been like, that's a bad plan. You're, I don't know who you are, but you're not very smart. Uh, it just, it wouldn't have worked. No, no. She was promised knowledge. She was promised authority. She was promised, you will be like God and no good and evil. No, and not just that, you will not die. No, God's wrong. He goes and he cuts the quick, he undermines God, and then he, undermi- and then he builds up her own esteem. He builds her up. Think, you know what's right, you know what's best, and you deserve what's best. Take this. He paints sin with virtue's colors. So, I mean, uh, just a few, I mean, he disguises gluttony and drunkenness with good social interactions, right? It was, we were just having such a good time. I lost count of how much I drank. Um, or a love of good food and drink. He presents laziness in work, okay, and faithful evangelism and speaking the truth in love as a, a calm confidence in the Lord. I mean, just, just think about that. This, you know, yeah, no, I know. I, that, that guy, he's been, he's been doing that for a while. Yeah, I know. He's, he's been, he's cheating. Yeah, I know, he's cheated on his wife a few times, actually. No, we haven't, nobody's really talked to him about it. No, we're just trusting the Lord, you know. It's, I, I think somebody will eventually get to him. Like, uh, you know, God is good, God will take care of it. My neighbor, uh, you know, I, you know, we, we talked about, the, we've talked about God every now and again, you know, kind of thing. Uh, but I, you know, honestly, just, I just trust the Lord. I'm just trusting the Lord that he's going to save him, you know. No, I haven't talked to him about Jesus. We haven't discussed that stuff. But, you know, I, I just trust. You know, God is good. God will take care of it. He's got it. Pride goes around as a sort of gratitude for not being as bad as another sinner, right? So, so we, 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 we look at somebody else and we look at their sins and we look at their particular situation or condition and it's kind of like, well, at least I'm not like them. Yeah, well, at least you're not like them. Right when you're about to feel a sort of conviction, a sort of sense of humility, a sober, kind of an op- eye-open realization, wow, I'm not as good as I thought. Maybe I do need to change this particular thing. Maybe I need to change my way of thinking here. No, but at least you're not as bad as them. And there's another side of this that it's, it's tricky to address, but I, I think it has to be addressed in our current cultural climate. And um, it's with related to 
self-pity and forgiveness. This, this is probably the big one in our culture. Unforgiveness and self-pity. And what a gallivants around as is the rights of the victim. Now, that's a hard thing to say. Because let me, let me clarify first off what I'm not saying. Make it very clear. I'm not saying that there's no true victims of sinful and abusive acts in the world. I'm guessing, not just, I know. All of us in this room in one way or another, some of us much more than others are victims of genuinely awful, sinful acts that we did not bring about ourselves. Okay, there is such a thing as that. Absolutely, every way, shape, and form. Of course, that's a reality. But the problem comes when this sort of, the the activity, the sinful activity done to us becomes a trump card for being accountable or responsible for our own behavior and our own responses toward others. He did this to me. I had to do something back to him. She spoke like this to me. I'll never forgive her. My dad did this. He raised me this way. Permanently marred the way that I do anything. I can't forgive him. It's his fault. It's his fault. It's their fault. It's often called the tyranny of the victim, right? And it gets fed in our culture. Our culture feeds it. But beloved... This is not the way that the Bible speaks of forgiveness. This is not what the Bible speaks of sin, of those who've been sinned against. God holds no soul accountable. He's not going to hold any of us in this room accountable for ways in which we were wronged. Right? That's going to be, that's the person who wronged us. That is is God's jurisdiction. He is going to go, he will deal with them. And he will deal with them. He will deal with the wrong that has been done to us. But God holds us to our responses to the ways in which we've been wronged. And he holds us to the obligation to forgive. The obligation to forgive. When Tim Mills was here, I don't know how many of you saw this, but he's, he puts up this video of these refugees that are running away from Syria in the current crisis right now, and their families were killed by ISIS. Their homes were destroyed by ISIS. And these people on this video are, they're, they're, conf- man, they're confessing love and forgiveness for the people who killed their children. And, 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 to, and we, in our, in our modern, sophisticated language, that's just so simplistic and silly. Those are great souls, beloved. Those are great souls. The soul strengthened by God to forgive an enemy. The soul strengthened by God to love one who would wrong us so profusely. And it's rooted, as they say in this video, it's rooted in the fact that God forgave them for their sin. And has not just done that, but he's welcomed them into his kingdom and to his banquet hall and into his family. And in that they see, how could we not forgive? How could we not forgive? It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Forgiveness is one of the most beautiful things. And unforgiveness, beloved, 
is a fire that will slowly consume you and those around you. And that's just the reality. Harboring unforgiveness will consume you. It's a slow burn, but it will consume you. And it's going to consume relations around you. And it's going to consume people around you. There's a dire effect, a massive effect that it has on you. Do not heed the enemy's lies and our modern lie that we're hearing about the rights of the victim to the exclusion of forgiveness and repentance and joy in the presence of a God who forgives and welcomes us into his family. The third lie, by causing saints to compare themselves and their ways with those reputed to be worse than themselves. And we talked about this a little bit already, right? Being, uh, Brooks calls it being quick-sighted abroad and blind at home. You know, uh, you're fully able to identify the shortcomings, the deficiencies, and the sinful tendencies, the pride and the anger of others, while being completely blind to your own arrogance, wrath, bitterness, lack of love, and impatience. I mean, just, just think about that, just, just practically. Anytime you catch yourself saying that sentence, well, yeah, I know, but at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so, or, well, yeah, I, yeah, but they, you're almost definitely wrong, okay? You are almost definitely about to say something you should not say or embrace something you should not embrace. Don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. There's a hook underneath the bait and it'll grab you and it will make you bleed and it will make you hurt. Don't take the bait. It looks sweet. It's not sweet. It's end is death. So those are the three temptations. And I want to focus on just one accusation because I think it's the root accusation for every Christian. And it is by causing saints to remember their sins more than their Savior. Yea, even to forget and neglect their Savior. This is the way that the enemy works, beloved. There's a, there's a tie between the temptation and the accuser, right? He tempts you to rebel against the Lordship of Christ, and then he accuses you so that you forget the salvation of Christ, so you forget the forgiveness that Christ offers on the cross, right? He, 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 he wants you to spit in Christ's face as Lord. He wants you to spit on Christ on the cross, if he does either of those, he's content. And if he can do both of them, it's way, way better. He's super stoked. Okay? So he, he's the one who spurs on that fight, right? That fight with your spouse, that fight with your coworker, that fight with your sibling, right? They're just, they're just so stupid. God, they're, they're just morons. How could, God, idiot, idiot. And you lash out. How could you have done that again? Again? Really? Again? When are you going to get over this? How do you call yourself a Christian? How can you consider yourself a Christian? Right? You're sitting there at the computer. No, no, no. Not. Oh, man, she looks good. Dang, she looks good. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. What have you done? It's been two months. It's been a year. It's been two weeks since you looked at something like that. How could you? Shameful, disgusting creature. God, God must just hate your guts. And I've heard it said too, just one way that Russell Moore puts it is, you know, 
with reference to abortion. He's the, he's the most, um, most pro-choice person going into the abortion clinic, and he's the most pro-life person coming out of the clinic, right? He'll turn around the second that he can because he wants your misery, beloved. He wants you to feel awful. He wants you to hate your life. He wants you to hate God. He wants to steal your joy. He would have your joy destroyed, annihilated, completely gone. He hates your joy. So the fight to stand is the fight to maintain this joy, a joy in the right things, a joy in Christ's lordship. Brooks ends this, little, this, this, uh, this accusation. He says, He that minds not Christ more than his sin can never be thankful and fruitful as he should be. And it's true. It's true. In conclusion, a chip, chipper sermon, right? Happy. Like, yeah, great. And it's not because we're, we're talking about a scheme. We're talking about the enemy, the, the liar, the one who hates our souls. So next week, Matt's going to be talking about the armor of God and what it means to take up the armor of God, what it means to fight against these schemes, what it means to battle the schemes of the evil one. But I think I'd be remiss without giving at least something to set that up. And the, conclusion, the concluding note is the remedy that Brooks gives. <laughs> and I think it's, the, it's, it's, a, it's kind of an encouraging remedy, but it's a challenging remedy. The remedy for this last lie, this deceptive scheme of the evil one, is repentance. Repentance. Repentance? Yeah, well, okay, that, that makes no sense. What do you mean repentance? I'm being accused. I feel awful. I feel condemned. I feel destroyed by what I've just heard from, from the enemy. How, what, what do you mean repentance? And I can't really say it much better than Brooks said it, so I'm just going to quote Brooks here. Believers must repent for their being discouraged by their sins. What? Talking like Jesus and Paul, weird, just in-your-face stuff. Their being discouraged by their sins will cost them many a prayer, many a tear, and many a groan. But this is because their discouragements under sin flow from ignorance and unbelief. Not stupidity, that's not what he's saying. Ignorance and unbelief, unmindfulness and unbelief. It springs from their ignorance of the richness, freeness, fullness, and everlastingness of God's love. And from their ignorance of the power, glory, sufficiency, and efficacy of the death and sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And from their ignorance of that real, close, spiritual, glorious, and inseparable union that is between Christ and their precious souls. Ah, did precious souls know and believe the truth of these things as they should they would not sit down dejected and overwhelmed under their sense and operation of sin. So, what do we have? Look to Christ. Look to Christ. And not just to Christ. And that's the beauty of what Matt's going to preach next Sunday, is that it's, it, we're told to take up this armor. Why is it said take up? 
He could have used a different word. He could have used a different term, a different analogy, right? Create new affections, create new motivations, create new behaviors, do those sorts of things. But he says, no, he says, take up. It's yours. It's at your feet. It's in front of you, a shield to defend against the enemy's lies, a sword to combat the lies of the evil one, a chest plate, a breastplate to cover you from the schemes of the enemy, a helmet, salvation, feet ready with the gospel of peace, all so that you can stand and it's yours and it's in front of you and it's yours in Christ and it's yours because he did it and because he gave it to you and it was not of your own earning. It's yours. That's the beautiful part of it. It's not a conjuring up of a magic trick, a neat formula, a perfect prayer that's going to cast away the devil in, all, in, every, in, in every circumstance. It's a way of being the full resources of God's power and authority and glory in Christ available to us all the time, every day. And that's why Paul says, take it up because it's ours. Beloved, when we remember our sins, when, 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 the, when the devil seeks to, to draw our hearts to different allegiances, to draw our hearts to the other kingdom, to draw our minds to think about things that are, that are of the world or whatever, the last thing we can do, the, the, the worst thing we can do is continue to dwell on those things and on how awful we are and on how bad things are. How much better to look to Christ, to look to Christ crucified. That's what faith is, to look to Christ crucified. Right? That's what righteousness is, to look up to Christ's righteousness, the righteousness that is now ours because of him. To look to salvation that was made ours in Christ. To look to the word of God that was given to us in Christ, in Christ, always, ever, in every situation, in Christ. And after you have done all, to stand firm. It's a beautiful thing, beloved. It's an incredible, it is a marvelous and beautiful thing. And as hard and as painful as it can be to realize the tactics of the evil one, know this, he who is in you, who is in you, is greater than he who is in the world. That is a majestic, over-the-top, out-of-this-world, out-of-the-park, incredible statement. He's in you. If you are in Christ, he is in you. And he's made you new. Sin has no dominion over you. The devil has no hold on you. The world and its ways and its sick distortions of the truth hold no sway, no ultimate sway over your life. God in his love sent his son to die for you, to bring you to Christ, to defeat the wiles of the evil one, And we're called in that to go forward and see other captives released. That's the best, that's the missional piece, right? After coming out of this, we're called now to release other captives by the exact same means that we combat the evil one who himself has taken them captive. Let's pray. Father, you are good and... um, and I just thank you for it. Um, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness and ways. The manner in which you have reached down to us and you've reached out to us. I pray that 
we would heed who you are. Heed who we are. That we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That we would give no opportunity to the devil and that we would run to each other to remind each other of the goodness of God in Christ. That you would build your people up and encourage them and strengthen them even today. Guard us and keep us and sustain us. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.